Welcome back to the Aware Audio Experience. This is episode 14, part two of our conversation with Dr. Michael Klein. If you're a returning listener, thanks for tuning back in. We'd love to have you. Before we get into the episode, as always, just want to shout out our next men's apparel line coming in less than a month. We're super excited about the way the shirts turned out. They got a bunch of surprises in there for you that we will reveal soon enough. Until then, stay posted. And if you like this content, please open Spotify or Apple Podcasts, drop us a review, subscribe. Those actions really help us. They really do. So without further ado, this is part two with Dr. Michael Klein. I pulled a quote from CARE at Stanford, and I wonder if you have thoughts on it. It says, our capacity to feel compassion has ensured the survival and thriving of our species over millennia. That quote is painting compassion as like an essential, something we've evolved to have that benefits us evolutionarily. And right. how do you reconcile with that? So the field of evolutionary psychology is thinking all of the qualities as we evolve in some ways are adaptive. They help us as a species. And if not through evolution, we'll move away from them. So much of the work in the compassion class is a part that's maladaptive for us, which is our threat system, right? Which was adaptive 5,000 years mm-hmm. ago when the saber-toothed tiger was chasing you, but is now Right, You don't need your heart rate to go up and blood pressure to go up when you open an email. <laughs> no right? no saber-toothed tiger in that email. <laughs> but, but our minds don't know right. that. And then we're more reactive, and then we're less skillful in how we respond. Contracted, yeah. Right. And so the compassion for human beings to be in tribes, villages, group, like that is just in us to care for each other, because in caring for each other that's the seeds of that gen- i mean the most central way is between mother and infant and because in our species infants need a lot more care than in other species if that natural outpouring of love and compassion wasn't there the species wouldn't continue mm. so like in a very specific literal way do not pass go but in a larger way we have in caring for each other as groups it really helps the human species enormously. Mm. And I think is so central to what's happening today in the world and whether we perceive others as like us, so then there's a sense of common humanity, or we make them other. Mm. And then there's a polarization. And then our minds can rationalize judging, hurting, blaming, treating them differently. That's interesting what you said at at the start there. I've never, you know, we have compassion essentially hardwired as part of like our birth pattern because it's a requirement. We're not frogs giving birth to a hundred tadpoles. We're humans. We have one child, you know, we have a relatively low like fecundity. We don't, we, we have to invest a lot into our, our children and you have to, there has to be some driver there to, to attach you, to bond you to that child, to ensure the survival of the species. So that's... You know, I mean, I do... So my main clinical focus has been couples therapy. My wife and I made a conscious choice not to have children. But I work a lot with couples with young children. And it is hard. You know, any couple that's being honest, the first six months or year of having an infant, 
is high. <laughs> you know, just the sleep deprivation, the screaming, yeah. the right. And so, if there wasn't this strong bonding mechanism, right, the species will not yeah. survive. And as you're saying that, read it also makes me. There's a distinction that comes. There's a researcher named Paul Gilbert from the University of Derby in England. That is, I call him the grandfather of all the compassion research. And so there are a lot of different compassion trainings in the West and protocols, but all of them kind of come back to him in some way. And one of the distinctions he makes is between the threat system, which is often maladaptive, but we don't know how to turn it off or even notice it. And that's where mindfulness can be really helpful. Mm. And he calls it the mammalian caregiving system, that we all have us in us, this place of soothing, and comfort, and ease. That's actually once you know how, very easy to access. Yeah. yeah. And it actually makes meditation a lot, lot easier when the mind goes off. You were talking about this earlier. If there is a feeling of caregiving, it comes back much easier than if there's frustration. How do you define compassion? Is it different from love, in your opinion? So my favorite definition of compassion, and I can think of compassion and self-compassion when there is the energy of loving kindness that we all have this ability that we just. Feel, care, love for another, and it bumps into suffering, and it stays loving. It becomes compassion,、hmm. right? And so, because sometimes someone feels loving, and I work with caregivers, either therapists or social workers or people working with the homeless. They start out having enormous hearts, but like the suffering is too big for the energy of their heart, and they kind of get knocked over.、Hmm. So it's it's the energy of love, but it's bumping into suffering and staying loving. Two other parts to the definition that I think that are important, essential, is when there is compassion, there is a call to action in some way. I mean, this is when we were talking earlier. It's like when the heart opens and you feel other suffering. It just there's the desire to help. There's some motivational energy in there、mm, to do something about it. That's Always a part of it. To read it back, it your first part is like it's it compassion is love in the face of suffering. Basically, it's love、yes. against the odds, or, or you know, even when it's hard, you persist.、Right. Yes, and it's actually I don't know if this is woo woo. Hey, we're we're open to it. I started out studying the Hindu tantric traditions, and then the Sufi traditions, and then the Theravada Buddhist traditions, and I had all these people that kept saying. You would really get a lot out of Tibetan Buddhism, and I went and looked, and the mantras and visualizations, and it just was like way overwhelming. And for me, there's something about meditating that is simple, and so I just could never cross that line. And then I came across this teacher that you mentioned earlier,、uh, Dan Brown. I made a habit of just finding the absolute best teachers I can in my life, both as a psychologist and as a meditator. He has influenced me profoundly more than all the others put together, because helped translate it to me as a Westerner in a way that my Western psychological mind could make sense of it. 
and this is you were referencing it, so I'll just mention it. If you put Dan Brown, PhD, and Sacred Sundays into YouTube, there's a lecture he gave where he's someone, he's a, a fire hose of information. But in that, in the Tibetan Buddhist perspective, the universe literally is compassion. That there's a certain way you can refine your attention, that the entire universe is one vast field of interconnected energy hmm. that is love and compassion. In my years of practice, that went from like a woo-woo idea <laughs> to something that was an aspiration in doing the loving-kindness practice to now that's something that I really experience directly, that I can kind of refine the lens. Mm. And it's, it, it's, not a, it's not a metaphor, it's not an image, it's a visceral, like, oh, this is actually more real. Mm -hmm. And our perception duality in the way we perceive the world and is actually the delusion. And so another way is the universe is compassion. So I don't know if that gets too gets a little out there. No, that, that resonates with me. I totally can relate to that feeling of it's a bodily sensation that you're plugging into, you know? Like I feel it physically in my body when I'm deep into a strong meditation practice and I'm doing a lot of yoga and I'm one with my body, mind, spirit. I float through my days and I really do feel like I'm, like you said earlier, swimming through this field of compassion and I'm so tapped in. And um, I actually wanted to touch on something you said a while ago, but I realized that a lot of it was, I was lucky enough to couple meditation with the therapy work I was doing on myself. And like, it was so mm -hmm. powerful to use the meditation while I was cleaning up some of my childhood traumas and just like removing all that noise. And I caught myself the other day just laughing at the irony of how good I felt and that realization that it was always there. It didn't find anything. It was already right. there. I was removing the other stuff. Have you read The Alchemist? Do you know he, he goes looking for this treasure around the whole world and it's under his house the whole time, right, right where he started. It was that feeling. So that, that, I mean, I remember on one of my long retreats, right, there's an image of the, it's the same story, but the, the beggar is begging at the crossroads and he's sitting on this little chest and, you know, and finally, at some point, he opens the chest and it's just filled <laughs> with diamonds and rubies and really realizing like, oh, that's not that's literally true. And so the image that I actually used in the loving kindness practice, what you're saying, and I find it helps me and it really helps others with their practice. So it's got a purpose to it is the striving that used to be the focus of my practice that doesn't work. It's like, I have to get to somewhere. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you really get, it's here. I just have to let go of what's in the way. Yeah, exactly. Dan Brown uses the image that we know the sun is there even when it's cloudy out. Right. That this place of radiance and stillness and heart is there. And so when we're sending loving kindness to ourselves or to someone else, we're just asking whatever is in the way to move out of the way rather than having to put anything there. Mm. So it's a lot, lot less efforting. Yeah. And he, I think he said the whole phrase, oh, the sun just came out is entirely wrong because what happened? The clouds moved. The sun was always out. Mm. It's just the clouds right. that moved. And it's, it's so profound because it's exactly how I feel about meditation. You're just 
removing all of that noise so you can feel that warmth and radiation that is life and love and compassion. Right. And what I have seen over the last few years is the more and more that I that goes from idea to an experience to a trait to a habit, there's a sense of trust that it's there. Right. And so even when things are complicated or difficult or there is some sense like, oh, it's there and I'll get back to yeah. it. And so it actually has on a psychological level, it really works in a deep way to build a deep sense of what's called basic trust. And this is where the, in psychological terms, what's called the attachment system. And a lot of the most cutting edge psychotherapies now focus on developing the attachment system. And the loving kindness, compassion work and meditation have a different way of accessing this sense of basic trust, which can also build the sense of security, which then has a number of psychological benefits around anxiety, depression, relationships. Yeah, once you touch that place, it's really hard to forget it. When I touched that place inside me for the first time, it was unbelievable. And then as you continue to touch it, that connection gets stronger and stronger. And then like you said, this trust develops where when things get a little shaky or crazier in life, all of a sudden you remember, not even all of a sudden, but when things get crazy in life, you remember that place and you have that connection to fall back on. And it really helps all that chaos almost dissipate. Yes. And the slight inverse of that, like as I, I think part of the power of mindfulness is that as my ability to train my attentional system is stronger, I can see my mind in real time throughout the day. And it's like each morning I kind of swim in this different way of experiencing myself as a human mm. being. And literally it's like each day is like, this is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> I love that so much. And then as I get very involved in emails and client, like it, I get more and more diluted and mm. back into all the complexities. Mm -hmm. Like I fall asleep on some level, on some level, I also stay awake, right. but then the next morning uh, or later, if I practice in the evening, it's like, wow, it really, like, I forget on a level. There's yeah. the sun. And <laughs> there it is. Move those clouds. It's just crazy, though, because it's a maintenance. That's why they call it a meditation practice, because we're just, you're never reaching a place. You're just good. You're always ebbing and flowing and working against it. And some days, like you said, I, I meditate in the morning. And some days I have to meditate at night or at lunch because right. whatever was going on in my life was just contracting me. And so I'm constantly trying to expand my consciousness and open up and live from this like abundant place. And it's that awareness. Where am I right now? And that took years of <laughs> meditating. Where am I right now? You know, you're naming something and this gets back to read your question from a while ago on what people developing a regular practice. And this is both my experience as a Western psychologist and as a meditation practitioner, is it's humbling how habitual our minds are. There's a inertia or entropy or autopilot. And so if you don't keep, when you were Sean, making it a practice over time, even when things open and change, the old habits, mm -hmm come back if we don't find a way to keep, whether it's through therapy or meditation or some other, I mean, there are so many different ways to focus the mind and touch the heart. I find that people that have a regular practice, 
that they're doing daily or almost daily, life is just a lot better. <laughs> less suffering. There's just no way to go around it. I mean, less anxiety. And I, not to get on a tangent, but I just think it's crazy how everybody has anxiety. Like, we all have it. It's nuts. I have pride myself so much in my daily meditation practice. And I'll be honest, the last few weeks, I've just felt way higher levels of anxiety than I usually feel. And of course, my ego gets a little hurt because I'm this guy who meditates every day. I'm above that. And I have to really check myself and be like, mm. you're a human, man. You're feeling anxiety just like the rest of the world probably is right now. Just stop denying it because that resistance right off the bat is making it worse. So that helped. And then it's like, you can kind of start to unpack it. Why am I feeling anxiety? So it's an entryway and it's something, Reed, as you asked about compassion. And I said, you know, there are all these different ways to talk about it. One of the other ways, and in some ways, one of the most helpful ways for me comes from the work of Kristen Neff. And she started out as a researcher and defining self-compassion. And so she named these three elements, which Sean will connect back with what you were just saying. So the one is you have to be aware of the suffering, right? And we live in a society where we're all masters of <laughs> pushing suffering away or distraction, you know, whether it's the internet or work or consuming yeah. or substances or, and so you have to be aware of it. The one that isn't present in a lot of psychological models and really has been quite life-changing for me is the awareness of common humanity hmm. that we all share this right and so the as you were saying it one of the traps that i think happens to every meditator or person in therapy is like oh i should have already learned this or i should be past, yeah, I'm past this. this why am i stuck here again right and if you stop and reflect feel into that this is part of the human condition that our minds and hearts do this because in the in the suffering there's a way our minds isolate so there's a little bit of shame mm -hmm. and that's where the the reflecting and realizing that we're all in this and we all do this uh, my favorite way Pema Chodron has a way that she says whenever you're suffering to imagine all the other beings on the planet you're all like I imagine a huge soccer stadium all feeling the same thing and there's just this visceral letting go that happens yeah totally I was just thinking that too doing it with everyone you're sad whatever when you're feeling an emotion that your body's fighting against just imagining all the people in the world feeling it and it's crazy how just right away there's this ooh, you come down a little bit and you're like wow okay mm. it's not unique to me there's this is just part of human nature. When there's awareness of the suffering and the common humanity, then when you bring kindness, the heart really settles. So I found this as a meditator, because I would have that a lot, or I've done all this, why is this happening? But now there's a rewiring that there's just kind of this kind of warm, friendly, you know, and I'll just say, you know, I see you're doing the best you can. This is really hard. And especially with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, we live in this time where for so many people, like, it's scary. And it's hard. And normal ways we have of finding satisfaction we don't have access mm -hmm. to. Right. So there's just all these different levels where it's difficult. Yeah. And the distractions that we usually experience are gone. Our which, coping mechanisms. Yeah. Our coping mechanisms have been removed for for the most part. So... 
there's a lot of emphasis on the things that maybe we're running away from. During quarantine, I don't live with my family. I live down in San Diego. I have a big family. I'm super close to them. So it was hard enough for me to move away. But going back to quarantine together was actually really beautiful. And I really loved being with my whole family. And, and outside of the pandemic, it was this beautiful experience that I got to wake up to every day. And by month two, I found myself, you know, we were all fighting more. That's just human nature. And so I, right. I really buckled down in my meditation practice on exactly what you're touching, which was... Waking up, and this is a brand new day. You love your family. You miss your family. Treat every interaction with them like it's brand new because it's so easy to get stuck in there like, oh, you again? Of course it's you, and we're starting to fight over <laughs> who got more bowls of cereal and stuff that has no serious implication. And so pulling back and refining my meditation practice in the morning to go back into the kitchen and look at my family again like I'm looking at them for the first time. Mm. It changed my whole perspective. And I felt like I got to relive when I started implementing that meditation practice in the morning, I got to relive every every day of, of quarantine like it was the first day of quarantine all over. That excitement, mm. that newness, that freshness. And it was like, keep it fresh, keep it new. That's what life's about. Like you say, every day you wake up and you're like, this is the best day ever. Mm. That shift in my morning meditation really allowed me to see it through that lens, which I thought was super powerful. Yeah. And I, you know, as you're saying that, I think about you have learned how to turn off your default mode network. And that's the thing that as it goes down, the sense of freshness, vividness, awe, delight go up. You know, as neuroscience advances, more and more people will get that it's actually not that hard to do. Waiting, there'll be a gadget that just helps you do it. <laughs> yeah, uh -oh. there you go. Uh-oh. But it'll come with a nice price tag. Don't worry. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the things, it's just as you were saying that, that I thought I would be remiss if I didn't say. There is so much out there. And like some level, it's all great. Because it's all helping people still their minds and touch their hearts. The way the Buddha taught it, the purpose of stilling the mind is that there is so much more to being human that we never get to see because we're just caught in the narrative and in the ego. There are a lot of people that want to use meditation to be less anxious, to deal with trauma, to be able to be more intimate with a partner. All of that is great. There are other people that have that kind of gnawing hunger for a deeper spiritual connection. And for me, it took me 30 plus years into my meditation practice to learn about, particularly it's in some of the um, Tibetan traditions, that it's not just about mindfulness and even just about love, although I'm a loving kindness junkie, mm. but that we can step beyond the way the mind conceptualizes. There's this quality of awakening that is so extraordinary and is our birthright. And I used to think, I would read about this in all these texts and I used to think like, oh, you have to like go away to a mountain top to do that. And it's such bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm on Zoom 35 to 40 hours a week and that's not counting emails. And like, so I have a, like a very full, busy life and I can access it every single day. Mm -hmm. And I believe that it's absolutely possible for anyone if you find the right 
teachers and make a moderate amount of consistent effort over time. And it's so worth it. It's just so this jewel that you were talking about is just there for the plucking Mm. and it's just letting go of the gunk. So I I wish someone had told me that (laughs) because I was kind of looking in the wrong place and really the practices of understanding the emptiness practices and the awakening practices. That was beautiful. (laughs) This whole conversation around compassion and love and meditation as a tool to tap into that and and your work that you're doing with that is inspiring. And it just has me thinking even in this conversation about that. And I've noticed over the years that I've used more heart emojis, like when I'm texting or when I'm messaging with people or I tell more people that I love them. And that's been a process for me. And I think, you know, I don't consider myself the traditional high school quarterback, like macho male, but I do think that in Western society, there is a phobia of emotionality for men and a phobia of letting yourself be compassionate. And so I'm wondering, and I'm just seeing that in myself and it's, it's something that I've seen. And I'm wondering in your work, do you see that fall along the, the traditional gender lines? Absolutely. And in a couple of different ways that are I think useful to discern between. Mindful self-compassion class that I teach. At times I would have classes that were three quarters women. Right now in one class, it's actually more men than women. And I, I love there's something, I limit the class to 12, there's something about the group interaction. I might, I might grow to 14, I'll see. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a way that as people get to share with each other, And there's definitely a gender divide. And I always share, when I first took the class with Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer, Kristen would have these ways of talking to herself in a kind voice. And I can't even do it just, I wouldn't even try. (laughs) But for me, it felt like nails on a chalkboard. I was just like, I would cringe, like I cringe. I mean, like that is just never gonna fucking be me. Now it's taken me like, and it didn't happen like three months later or six, you know, this is now, that was, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And one of the most powerful parts is talking to myself in a kind tone of voice. It's so, as an emotional regulation technique, so powerful and on a psychological level, so transformative. So I see a range, some men, it's very difficult. Almost all men, it's a little difficult. But, but there's a way to start where you are rather than kind of having to get somewhere, just kind of go at your own pace and it softens. If you just do the practices, yeah. if, you, if you put in 10 or 15 minutes a day, most days, and you stay with it over time, it's incredibly transformative. The second way, and we can even talk about, I'll try to keep it simple, <laughs> is as therapists, there, there's the characterization of therapists saying to their clients, what are you feeling? Mm. And in general, men have much more difficulty than women with being able to discern what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. In my classes, there's a, a, a part in the neuroscience, it's interioception. We have all of these nerve endings inside of our bodies. And as you learn to wake them up, there's a whole range of benefits that they have on a psychological, energy, health, spiritual level. For most men, there's a kind of numbness. And so sometimes I'll ask, and in every group, two or three men, they're like, I don't even understand the question. (laughs) 
right? It's just like, it just makes no sense. And, and if it's not held right, it leads to shame. Like everyone else is getting it but me. Yeah. But there's a way that there, there's a, a protocol of going really slowly, and I call it a thawing process. Hmm. With certain meditative practices, 10 or 15 minutes a day, then really over the eight or 10 weeks, by the end, they start to get it. Mm. Yeah, I think for me, you know, we're talking about feeling compassion. But before you can even dive into compassion, you need to be open to your emotions. A third way that I think of it is often, I was just thinking of a particular man in one of my classes, is being emotional or being vulnerable is seen as weak. And there's a lot of socialization on sports teams, between primary caregivers, all sorts of places that showing emotion makes you weak. But there's a way of talking about it that actually turning towards our experience actually takes courage. So it's actually a strength. As I talk through it slowly enough with somebody, and sometimes it takes doing it a few times, like they get it. And then it becomes something to move towards, especially when they understand the benefits, that it leads to more psychological well-being, it leads to your partner being happier, whether you're in a same-sex or a heterosexual relationship. One of the, there's research about the self-compassion protocol, and one of the things it helps with is emotional avoidance, that in turning, as we have more resilience, which all of these skills are incredibly, incredible at building resilience, we can turn towards what's difficult, whether someone has cancer, they're going through a divorce, or there's just grief they don't want to face. And then it's it's actually, it's really strengthening mm. because you know, I just did that. Mm. So it, it, it's getting them to understand that it's actually courageous and strength building rather than weakness. And then it shifts. Yeah. Does that... I mean, especially the last one, the third way that you've described resonates completely. Accepting that, accepting what that means and getting to that place and staying in that place of acceptance and not wavering from there. You know, that required a little bit of restructuring or dismantling my gender narrative of what does it mean to be a man? So and and it's just it's been a a path. It's been a journey for me to to get there. And I'm, I'm, you know, still on my way of course as always that's great you got to just be open to owning those emotions and that's a powerful thing it's a it's a sign of power i look at you guys and how young you look and i'm like oh my god you guys are like so ahead of the curve (laughs) (laughs) i was so utterly clueless and it really it it leads to a happier life it's all built on the backs of people like you we're lucky to 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 talk to people and and, and learn and that's what's been so great about all that's this. that's what it's all about for us it's, yeah that's the engine here is uh really pulling away those nuggets that you guys have refined over years and decades and you're saving us so much time you're giving and we spread it out you know that's why we wanted we felt so compelled to make a podcast because we want to make mm-hmm. this information so much more accessible so thank you Thank you so much for taking the time. We we really had a fun one here. We went deep. Is there anything that you'd want to just say to our listeners about meditations, whether that's starting a practice or your experience with it? There, I mean, in in different ways, I've said it, but the our hearts and minds need training, and without training, even with really favorable circumstances, life is hard. And when you get 
but training the mind and training the heart, it just pays off over time enormously. Richie Davidson said, you know, he said, if you go back 500 years, no one brushed your teeth. Hmm. And now we just take it that you brush your teeth. That I think it'll be like that. Like when people get it as there's more research, like this is just, this is just a basic health practice for training the attentional system and take, tending to the heart. I always tell Reed there was PE when we grew up, right? There was 20 minutes of right. PE. I think that's where meditation's headed. There's going to be 20 minutes of meditation just as woven into like curriculum, education curriculums as PE was when I was growing up. Well, and I, I mean, my don't work with uh, kids and teens. I made a choice as a psychologist to just work with adults. Mm -hmm. But I think the real is the self-compassion work with middle school, seventh and eighth graders, mm -hmm. seventh, eighth, ninth graders, because for so many people, it's such a difficult part and it's around identity. And so the self-compassion and so I've had many, many participants say, why didn't I learn this in school? And, you know, I think as there's more research or more people with money that want to do philanthropy, that's where it's mm. going and will have an enormous impact because the skills are just such incredibly valuable life skills. Yeah, they amplify all the other parts of your life. Michael, thank you so, so, so much. This was everything and more we really appreciate it. we could feel your passion i feel like i just did a two-hour meditation just talking to you so <laughs> so much love and compassion coming from us to you it is really a pleasure and um i really do feel incredibly blessed every day anything i can do to share it feels like the most meaningful thing i can do as a human being And that concludes episode 14 and our two-part series with Dr. Michael Klein. If you enjoyed his content, check out episode 16. It'll be a guided meditation where Dr. Klein walks you through self-love and self-compassion even more deeply. There's never a bad time for some self-love and self-compassion. So on that note, send some love out to Royce York out in Davis, California. He purchased an immersion package and sent us a message about how much he's loving our podcast. If you want a shout out, send us a message on Instagram. We really appreciate the feedback. And if you have any ideas on what you'd like to see in this podcast, what you're liking, what you're not liking, let us know. We'd really appreciate it. And we want to grow with you and your needs in mind. Help us grow so we can all grow together. Looking forward to having you in our next episode. Until then, take some of that love and compassion and spread it out in the world. Hayware Audio, out. <laughs>